Two and a Half Admins, episode 104. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you want to plug EuroBSDCon. Yeah, so uh, EuroBSDCon will be in Vienna, Austria, September 15th to 18th. I'll be speaking there about uh, making ZFS scale for NVMe devices. And uh, Pavel Doadek will also be speaking about his improvements to ZFS to do per-file cloning. Plus uh, a couple dozen other talks on things related to BSD. It'll be good fun. First in-person conference since 2019, so I'm looking forward to it a lot. Yeah, sounds like fun. I'll put a link in the show notes. Let's do some news then. And the first is that Amazon is set to require iRobot, the maker of the Roomba robot vacuum cleaners, for $1.7 billion. What could possibly go wrong here, eh? Well, they could always start, you know, sending floor maps of your home to the police along with the footage from your ring doorbell. Well, yeah, like looking at that price tag, I'm guessing what they're buying wasn't just some patents that iRobot owned and this somewhat popular brand of vacuum cleaner, like Jim alluded to, it probably a lot of it was all the data that Roombas have been collecting since they came out more than a decade ago now. And presumably, you know, there's there's more value for that data than just <laughs> giving it for free to cops like what they do with ring doorbell footage. But um it's just hard not to think of it in those terms. And honestly, it's kind of hard to know what to think about that. Because it's like, on the one hand, uh, don't really like the idea of cooperating with the organizations that tend to, you know, come bash your door down at 3 a.m. and toss a flashbang in the baby's crib, which is a thing that actually happened. But, you know, there's also the argument, oh, but, you know, maybe if they had your floor plan, they wouldn't have tossed the flashbang in the baby's crib. Maybe they would have gotten it in your bedroom then, and that would have been better. <laughs> I'm maybe even slightly more worried about what other nefarious things Amazon wants to do with the data that doesn't involve external entities. You know, I'm assuming they think the data is valuable for something they want to do with it. And all this stuff Jim was talking about is just bonus on top. Could it be as simple as they want the mapping data to work out how to sell you stuff? Like you've got a space over there, or you'd, a nice lamp would fit there or something. I'm sure there's a bit of that, and I'm sure there's other things they would like to know not just, you know, how much floor space you have, but the fact that you have this robot and you don't know what data it's capturing and sending back to Amazon starts to raise some questions about, you know, why aren't there regulations about what data the device you buy can be capturing and sending off to people without your permission. I can make a case for some interesting synergy between the Roomba ownership and the Eero ownership, you know, in that you could theoretically use a harvested floor plan that somebody's Roomba put together to either recommend Eero to them, like, you know, in a specific number of units for that matter, and even recommend placement or, you know, just kind of, again, a synergy with somebody who owns both to say, you know, hey, we noticed maybe you should have an access point over here. The thing about that is it feels like that would be a big mistake because the two most heavily cloud-connected mesh Wi-Fi providers are Eero and Plume. And in my experience, people just absolutely rant and rave against them in pretty much direct proportion to that level of like cloud-connected smartness report data. And I tell people all the time, like, you know, you're, you're worrying about that more than you really probably should with Eero. It's not really in a great position to collect very interesting data, particularly, you know, compared to what Amazon's already getting from web bugs all over the internet, right? 
But, you know, once you start saying, oh, well, Eero, it's the Wi-Fi that knows what your floor plan looks out, so it can tell you exactly where to put the thing. Like, once you start telling people, oh, no, 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 we're, we're, we're pushing all this stuff about, like, the contents of your house back to Amazon, I don't think that's going to be great for sales. But the kind of person who buys a Roomba probably doesn't know or doesn't care about the floor plan mapping. Because I wouldn't buy one, no chance. I think there's an intersection there. You know, the type of people that got a Roomba, especially very early, where, you know, they wanted a cool robot more than they mm. wanted a better vacuum cleaner. Although now it's just, you know, I don't have time to vacuum and this robot walks around and does it for me or whatever. And then I was starting to think of some of the synergies, thinking back to old TechSnap episode about using Wi-Fi to detect when people are in the room. Mm-hmm. So if the Roomba can, like, broadcast something and then the mesh of Wi-Fi points can see, you know, where the signal's blocked by this thing that keeps moving around. Can Amazon now tell what room of the house you're in and decide when your Alexa thing starts doing an ad for something or you have a video on, but you walked out of the room? We'll pause the advertisement and resume it when you come back. They don't actually necessarily need Roomba for that so much. No, but just every extra data point they have means that they can get more accurate with it, right? Yeah, the the point that I was trying to get to, though, is that if they care to have it, they can already harvest that data just out of, you know, the Eero Mesh Wi-Fi itself. Plume already has the capability of doing that. They call it HomePass. It's not the kind of resolution where, like, you would know which person was in what room or where exactly they were. It's basically just free motion detection. A lot of people don't realize this, but modern motion detectors very frequently already operate on the 2.4 gigahertz band exactly the same as Wi-Fi does. And in fact... I found out the hard way once when I located a Wi-Fi access point too close to a Bosch motion detector that turned out to be 2.4 gigahertz instead of infrared. Every time somebody would download a, a large file in one particular remove that office, it would set the alarm off and they'd have to call the <laughs> alarm company. It took a while to figure out what the hell was going on there. I was thinking that was going to be the other way around of just the Wi-Fi would suck because the motion detector was just blaring on 2.4 gigahertz. But the fact that it was the other way around is actually more amusing. I'm not sure that the uh, the motion detectors are active. I think they're passive devices. So maybe it's not for specific stuff like we're going to advertise this particular mesh Wi-Fi thing to you and tell you why we're advertising it to you. It's more like they have worked out that you could probably do with that. And then when they think is the right time to put that as a sponsored product in your face, the algorithm will decide that. I'm thinking it's more subtle. And like Alan said, like the, as many data points as they can possibly get, the better. And they'll probably feed it into machine learning models and all the rest of it. And they just want to just have all the data. Well, yeah, it's, it's very possible that Amazon is like, we're just going to acquire this data. We don't even know what we're going to do with it, but I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll make money off of it somehow. Yeah. Both of y'all said some things about what Amazon actually could or could not technically do with that data when we were talking about you know consumer outrage and pushback. And that's not really where that comes from. Uh, When you really want to try to gauge consumer outrage and pushback on privacy issues, it's not so much about technical reality as about, you know, widespread perception. And people get really irate and really worried when you start talking about something like a floor plan. I mean, I can tell you that from very direct personal experience, because when I ran, you know, mesh Wi-Fi tests for Ars Technica and Wirecutter that included simplified floor plans in my house so I could demonstrate like how things were set up and, you know, what impact that had and whatever, 
I had just pages and pages of comments on people talking about, oh, just all the nefarious things that were going to happen now that anybody on the internet could see what my floor plan was. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, my biggest defense against that is, A, you've got to come to South Carolina, and then you've got to figure out where I am, and you know, then you've got to like hang out around my house. I don't think my floor plan is going to help much, and even if it would, it's pretty much a matter of public record anyway, because I'm in a house, not an apartment. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, most... Houses built in the last 30 years are pretty cookie cutter. There's there's only so many floor plans. They're not really bespoke like they used to be. And apartments in an apartment building, there's usually only like four layouts and there's just alternated or whatever based on jigsawing the pieces together. Right. Plus, there was that one time you posted a photo that had your whole address in it and I had to blow it out and send you back the photo so you could replace it. And I appreciate that. But I mean, honestly... If somebody really wants to find your address, they're going to find your address. It's just not that hard anymore. The days when it was as simple as telling the phone company that you wanted an unlisted number are are, are over. <laughs> but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Amazon does with it. I just feel like at some point we need to start thinking about the ethics and the regulation that should be going with this type of thing so that all these devices we have in our house we should at least know what they're sending back to home base. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Google is going to allow political parties to send you emails to your Gmail inbox that will automatically skip the spam filter even if they ought to go into your spam. This seems like the kind of thing that would piss you off, Jim. It does piss me off. It pisses me off from pretty much every angle. You know, I I don't want political campaigns getting an easy out past the spam filter. They don't deserve it. They don't need it. There's no reason for it. I already spend too much time trying to get them to stop hassling me in the first place. It also pisses me off because this is coming about largely due to specifically American conservative right-wing outrage because they found out that the orange guy's campaign mails were not getting through they were getting caught in spam traps at a higher rate than uh, Democrats' campaign emails. And there's a reason for that. That campaign used every scummy spam tactic in the book. So, of course, it fell off all of spam filters. It impersonated other people in the from and the reply to addresses. It put, you know, names in the subject to try to make it look like, you know, that was something other than it was. It used white text on a white background for keywords. I mean, just... Every stupid, disgusting spammer tactic, you know, O's for zeros and vice versa, all of them. Everything I've ever written a regex about myself to catch more spam that the default filters didn't catch, 
the Trump campaign did <laughs> and is still doing. So yeah, they get caught in spam traps more. It's not because partisan blah, blah, blah. It's because they're being dicks. Yeah. And, you know, during the hearing they had at the Federal Election Commission about it, <laughs> this great quote here from one of the commissioners, I have a hard time getting around the fact that this is a unique benefit offered to political committees and only political committees, uh, likening it to an in-kind contribution to political groups. Like it should count as a donation from Google and there should be a cap on it. My bigger question is, you know, what's Google going to do to stop me, a not American, from getting this spam? Because I definitely didn't sign up for any of this. I don't live in the country. I can't vote in the election. And I get this crap. Not to the same degree as Jim does, but it's obvious that they're literally spamming in this case if I'm getting it. The argument here is that UPE should have different rule set from UCE. The professional big kid word for spam is UCE, meaning unsolicited commercial email. So what this boils down to is political groups are saying, oh, well, UPE unsolicited political email should have different rules. I do not agree with that. If it was going to have different rules, frankly, I'd rather they be more strict, not less strict. I wonder if it means that even if you consistently mark them as spam, they just won't go into spam. Like it's supposed to learn, right? And it generally does a fair job of learning Gmail, I found. I get a lot of unsolicited stuff about, we want this guest on your podcast, and I just mark them all as spam. And then I look in my spam and there's just a lot of them that I never even saw there. Yeah, that'll stop working because this proposal would bypass all of the spam filtering entirely for stuff coming from PACs that, you know, is for campaign purposes. Now, you would still be able to construct a rule set mm. as opposed to, you know, trying to spam, uh, train the, the spam demon to filter it for you. You could create your own rules, but the hilarious part about that is, Remember how I mentioned why the Republicans' emails keep winding up in the spam filters more anyway? Because <laughs> they're already designed to get around every conceivable message rule that you know you could have created that was just a static rule rather than machine learning trying to figure out what's what. If you're like anything that says from Republican candidate X, you know, move it to said folder. Well, it's not going to work because sometimes Republican candidate X is going to put Hillary Clinton in the from on that email. Everything you can think of that should be a surefire identifier, they actively try to find ways to work around that because they don't want you not seeing it. So they use the exact same tricks the spammers do. So if you turn off spam filtering for that. Uh, Does this mean that the Dems might start doing the same thing? To a degree, the Dems have been getting scummier over the last several years trying to keep up. It was a very different political landscape before 2016, especially in terms of campaign contributions and funding and sourcing. Before then, I would not get my phone blown up with text messages from random dumbasses running for some office somewhere in the country that don't even bother to identify themselves, what party they're in, what district they're running in, what state. They're just like, can we count on your vote? <laughs> no, <laughs> you can't. It's like, I don't even live in that state. Like, don't you look at the area code of the phone number? But it's, it seems like we'd want the same regulations they have on the TV commercials where you have to identify who paid for the commercial and what the hell they're talking about. Well, to a degree, you, you do still have that. And 
not in the text messages in the in the email spam you do but by the time you get to that you've already read all the way to the bottom of the spam because that's where it is so you know they already quote one unquote at that point like it's game over it's not the same with tv ads though like it's at the end this message was paid for by whatever yeah exactly the text messages they they will mention the candidate's name every time but, you know, it's just first name, last name. You know, can can we count on you? First name, last name's primary is, you know, X date. Can we count on your vote? <laughs> Probably not, because odds are real good. You're not in my state. I don't know what party you're even running for. I don't even know what office you're running for. You didn't say any of that. You just blew up my phone for no reason. Yeah. And then from a technical aspect, how is Google going to identify these specific emails? And how are we going to make sure somebody can't spoof it and get their spam through on this cut out in the anti-spam filter? That really wouldn't be that difficult because that should be like a two-way effort between the PACs and Google. And Google can easily say like, you know, okay, you have to register your MX as a PAC MX. And that's the only thing allowed to emanate from it. And this is how you authenticate, you know. Give us your DKIM key and we'll know that that's really you or whatever. Exactly. That's that's really not that difficult to challenge. Yeah, I think it would just be Slightly interesting to know how they're planning to do it, but maybe they're purposely not saying because the extra security through obscurity. Well, and to the best of my knowledge, this is literally just a Google thing anyway. It's not like yes. we're not talking about passing a law that you can't spam filter political emails. So really, technically, it would have like no impact on me because I'm still, you know, that ridiculous savage running his own mail server. And you better believe I'm not going to turn spam assassin off, you know, if something says it's coming from the Republican Party. Part of this from Google was actually a response specifically to earlier in the summer, a Republican from South Dakota tried to put forward a bill that would ban email providers from algorithmically sorting federal campaign emails. And I'm sure without having any understanding of how you would identify what are federal campaign emails and what are not. So I can understand Google doing it by choice to try to blunt any attempts to make a law that will be a much harder to deal with. Thank goodness we have politicians from a state with a population of a decent-sized county just having this level of impact on national and even international <laughs> technical. Uh. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really appreciate that. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Joe has done. He writes, I'm going to be setting up a TrueNurse box soon. I have drives ordered, and I'm just waiting for them to arrive. 
two quick questions. The first one, is there a certain method for burning in a new set of drives to verify they are functioning as expected? Yes, there's a, an application called BadBlocks that is specifically targeted for that. BadBlocks is configurable, but the short version is it will write data and then read data from every sector on the drive and tell you whether it found any errors. And so running BadBlocks on the drive is intended to both put some stress on it early in the bathtub curve to hopefully, you know, flush any burnout that might happen in that more vulnerable part of the bathtub curve and also just find out, is there already a problem, period? Now, there are a couple of caveats to that. One is that if you're doing this on a Rust disk, it will take for bloody ever. So, you know, running bad blocks on a full set of like 18 terabyte drives is probably not really going to be practical for most folks. Um, you're going to be talking about weeks doing that. The other is that trying to run on solid state drives, you can easily end up burning a significant fraction of the drive's overall write endurance lifetime running bad blocks on them. So for most folks, I, I don't really recommend it. I generally just design enough redundancy in my systems that they're going to be okay. And I build my pool and, you know, I might do some fairly heavy IO on the entire pool before it, you know, leaves my custody for like six hours or so. But that's, that's pretty much sufficient. It also depends on the use case. If this is something that's going to be at your house, then you don't really need to worry about it. When a drive fails, it'll fail. Like if you find out about it in the first couple of days or two weeks later, it doesn't really make a difference. You still have to do the warranty replacement. It's the same process in the end. When it's something like Jim was alluding to where it's going to be out of your custody and go into production somewhere, sometimes just putting some load on it for, like Jim said, six or 12 or 24 hours or whatever to find any of those drives that are going to conk out right away just saves you a bit of hassle but it doesn't really make a difference to the long-term life of the pool and so on. An alternative to bad blocks is not quite as good because it doesn't try to read it, but ZFS has a feature called ZPool Initialize. And what that will do is go and write to every unused sector on the disk. But this is after you've created the pool. So you can create the pool and start using it. And then in the background, it goes and writes a pattern of not zeros to every bit of free space on the drive. This was originally designed for use in virtual machines like uh, VMware, where the disk might be thin provisioned, or uh, for use in Amazon, where, you know, the first time you write to a sector, it might take a lot longer because it has to go and allocate the space from their backend storage. So it goes and basically touches all the free space the first time to get that penalty out of the way. But it means you don't have to wait before you can start using the machine while you're going through and writing to every sector on the disk. And then, you know, just by looking at zpool status, you'll see if any write errors happen to come up. And, you know, maybe you want to replace that disk or just looking at the smart data after you're done the initialize, did any sectors get remapped in the first couple of days? And if they did, then maybe that drives a little more suspect. But if they didn't, then you're good to go. But unlike bad blocks, you're not waiting days and days or weeks before you can actually start using the pool and loading data on it. But like Jim said, on an SSD, that's just going to burn up a bunch of your write endurance for no reason. I'd also just like to say I particularly enjoy the irony of adding a feature to ZFS that makes it force something else it's stuck on top of pre-allocate despite ZFS itself being a copy on write file system. Yep. It's just, it's turtles all the way down, man. From the way Joe has phrased this, it sounds like it's going to be his first proper NAS box. And so... The chances are that it's being set up to 
copy a bunch of data onto it, like perhaps from a bunch of old USB hard drives or, or whatever. So isn't a reasonable test to just start copying that data on and if one of the drives fails, then it fails? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning there, because especially if it's going to be at home, exactly what Joe just said, loading your data onto it is going to be stressful for a bunch of days. And as long as a drive doesn't get kicked out, then you know you pass the burning test. And if it does, whether it gets kicked out after a day or two weeks for your home system, it doesn't really matter. Either way, you have to go through the exact same warranty process. I guess maybe if it goes much beyond that, you get into the, you know, it's not as easy to return it to the store. You have to deal with the manufacturer, but I wouldn't be too worried about trying to stress the drive out while it's still in the Amazon return window. A home user is a little bit less likely to be handling everything entirely professionally, and they may be a little slower to pick up a drive failure to begin with, because the odds that a home user is just like running ZPool status, you know, once every few weeks, you know, when they get a wild hair and it happens to occur to them, pretty high. I don't want to act like things don't work that way in the business environment way too frequently as well, but it's even more likely in the home environment that there's not going to be any proper monitoring. They may not notice for a while if a drive fails. So if you're going to be sloppy with how you keep up in monitoring your pool health, maybe you do want to invest a little bit of you know extra time up front trying to get a drive to go ahead and fail on you if it's going to do it anytime soon. With that said, again, you know, it's, that's not a best practice. That's kind of a workaround for the fact that, you know, you're sort of admitting that you're not going to be doing best practices in your environment. But if you're going to spend the time stressing it, why not do it with something useful? Let's say the drives don't fail. Well, what have you lost? Nothing. You've copied a bunch of data onto there that you wanted on there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. If, if you've got enough data to copy onto the new system that just getting the data on there consists of a period of, you know, six to 12 hours of high activity on the drives nonstop. Yeah, that's, that's a burn in. You're good to go. You don't you really do not need more than that. That is perfectly sufficient. Yeah. And you can always do a, a ZPool scrub after to have it go and read back all the data and make sure it's all exactly correct. Yeah. All right. Well, the second question, is there a guide for best practices for ZFS and TrueNAS? such as how often to scrub drives and other common settings within the software. So the default in TrueNAS for a scrub is once a month, which is good. I sometimes only do mine like once a quarter, so once every three months because of the performance impact, but I'm also watching ZPool status for problems a lot closer than most people probably are. And then for best practices, I definitely think kind of to Jim's point on the previous part is definitely get the notifications set up properly in TrueNAS so that when something does show up in ZPool status or smart reports a drive is overheating or is, is uh, you know, has pending sectors, that you'll be able to get a notification and not, you know, not find out that a drive has failed for five or six weeks and then find out, you know, when a second drive fails. Yeah, Ubuntu also defaults to a, a scrub once per month, which a lot of people don't realize that one is scheduled for you automatically. On an Ubuntu system, if you look in etc. cron.d, you'll find a zfsutils-linux file, and that's got your baked in right from the factory scrub schedule. By default, it happens on the second Sunday of every month. I think monthly is a great default. I don't really recommend being Allen and uh, you know dialing that back to once quarterly. Scrubs are important because they help you uncover potential bit rot in areas of your data that you don't read very often. And that can absolutely matter if you don't do scrubs and you have, let's say you got 20 terabytes of data, but only two terabytes of it is particularly hot and you've got 10 terabytes, you might not even read once a year. It's going to be very easy for errors to accumulate 
in that 10 terabytes of stale data that you don't catch unless you scrub it. So by scrubbing once a month, you're saying, well, I'm not going to let this have a ton of time to accumulate. You only have a maximum of 30 days to try to nail so much more of the redundant or parody, you know, copies of the data that I actually lose data because the scrubs are catching it and correcting it. Now, pushing it back to once a quarter means that you don't have, you know, that storage load of the scrub as frequently as once per month. But already, if it's only happening once per month, it's not something that you're dealing with like all the time, but it is something you need to deal with. In my personal opinion, pushing it back further than that just says you're going to be even less prepared for that storage load when it comes up because you're not used to it. I think the better practice is I would not extend it further than once a month. I would make certain that I had enough storage performance capacity that I can operate within expected parameters while a scrub is happening. If anything, scrub more frequently. I don't usually recommend that people actually do scrub more frequently because I think once a month is sufficient. But I don't think there's a hard and fast line that, you know, any faster than this is is bad or any slower than this is bad. I think once a month is a good default and I don't think there's a whole lot of reason to adjust it. Yeah, and that's why it's that default on FreeBSD, TrueNAS, and Ubuntu. The other thing is if it is coming down to being an issue, or especially, I guess, since Joe mentioned Sunday specifically, uh, a feature that ZFS grew a little while ago that I always forget about is the ability to pause a scrub and then resume it later. So you can actually configure a scrub to run like during off hours. And, you know, it might take longer to finish. You, you know, you spend, you know, two weeks of the month between scrubs actually doing the scrub only during the hours when the office is closed, but that might actually work out even better. Right. Well, before you two get off onto another ZFS rabbit hole, we better wrap it up. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.